Good morning, everybody. It is good to be here today on such a gorgeous day. I don't know about you, but I'm a little warm. So, you know, I'm going to be up here sweating, so it's all good. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, you are here, and we know that uh, you have something to say to each one of us today. Open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds so that we can hear your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So there are two things today that I want you to notice that Matthew is communicating. This is a really familiar, we've got two chapters. It's the, the Lord's um, the Last Supper, it's the trial, it's the crucifixion, it's the burial of Jesus. This is all really, really familiar territory for us, right? Um, we've just been through Easter, we've just been through the Passion Week, um, so we have been experiencing this on a different level, so it's kind of appropriate that today we're studying it um, on, as, a, as, as we're just, we're studying, we're not actually just reading it through and using it as a devotional time. So I want you to notice that there are two things that Matthew is trying to communicate through this particular, um, the way he presents these, these narratives, okay? First of all, this is the longest narrative in Matthew. He generally writes short little stories, right? He tells Jesus' story um, in short snippets, um, but this one is long. It goes through three chapters. And because it's, this is the, the climax of the story, right? So it's really exciting that we get to, to study it. But he's telling this narrative in a way that does two things. First of all, he wants to communicate. Remember, he is writing for a Jewish Christian audience that is struggling with how to incorporate new Gentile Christians into um, the church, right? Um, they're trying to figure this out. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, when we, I guess back in January, <laughs> when, when we talked about um, how the Jewish Christians had certain traditions that were really, really important to them, um, and then there, these Gentile Christians came in and didn't have those same traditions, and they're trying to figure out how do we work through this um, as a church? What does it mean um, that we're, we're not no longer held to the law in the way that we always have been? So, Matthew is answering the why question. Why did Israel reject the Messiah? Okay, and, and what does that mean for the church? What does it mean as we're embracing new people who have different, um, different histories, different um, traditions that they're engaged in, right? So he's doing that. Um, and then he's also answering the question um, about can God... Um, make his will, complete his will, make it happen, despite human failings, despite evil, despite sinister intent, despite, despite corruption. What does that do to God's will? And the, Matthew answers that very vehemently. God is powerful enough to make his will happen, despite all of the, the forces that are working against it. Okay, so, <laughs> I 
want to tell you a story about broken expectations. Um, how many of you have ever had an expectation broken? Like, <laughs> right? This is a common occurrence. Um, <laughs> uh, some of you might know, and some of you may not, but you will know this now. I'm a huge soccer fan. Okay? Uh, I follow the, the Sounders. Um, we watch every game. We schedule our schedules around the Sounders games. You know, we literally, it's like, okay, what time is the Sounders game? No, we can't go to that party. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're not going over to that person's house for dinner that night because we know there's not going to be a Sounders game. Or there's going to be a Sounders game and they're not going to be watching it. Um, so a couple of uh, months ago, I, I was officiating a wedding and it was the first Sounders game of the season. <laughs> and, and literally, I was debating, like, do I go to the reception? I mean, the wedding was gonna be over, right? So I, you know, my job was done, but do I go to the reception? This is a dear, dear friend. Um, I really wanted to go to the reception, but it was the first game of the season. So we, we negotiated, my husband and I, and, um, he wore his Sounders jersey under his nice shirt. Um, and we, uh, we went to the reception and we tracked it on our phones. We didn't watch it though, so you know, give us that much credit. <laughs> so we are huge Sounders fans. Um, and, but the Sounders have this, you know, like all Seattle sports teams, if you, you know, translate this into, you know, Huskies or Wazoo or Seahawks or Mariners or whomever, um, when you get hopeful and you have these expectations, um, and then they crush them, right? Um, so in, in 2016, the Sounders won the MLS Cup. It was so exciting, and they did it in spectacular way, right? They started out pretty slow in the season, um, it's a very long season if you're not familiar with soccer. It's a very long season. They play almost every week, uh, sometimes multiple times a week, and, and so it can be, it's a, it's a long haul. They started off really slow at the beginning of the season, didn't win many games, but then, you know, something changed in the middle of summer, and they, like, rocked it, got all the way through to the MLS. They managed to win the MLS Cup without having a single shot on goal. That, uh, like, if you don't know what that means, I'm sorry. Um, imagine, <laughs> Swoops is back there, yeah. Um, so they, they won on, on penalty kicks, which, you know, is, is kind of scary. But, um, so MLS Cup in 2016. So you can imagine what our expectations were for 2017, right? We had these huge expectations. We're gonna go, we just won the MLS Cup, we're the defending champions, we are gonna have an awesome time. New, new, new. The Sounders started off the next season very slowly. By, they started in April, actually they started in March. So they started in March and they made it through, um, all the way through June with only five wins. Okay, that's really bad. Um, so it was, our, our little hearts were broken. And we were struggling because our, we had these really high expectations and then it fell apart, right? Well, they ended up going back to the MLS Cup 
again against Toronto, same team as the year before. Um, so that turned out okay. They lost that time. But um, they, our expectations were crushed at the beginning of the season. It was really, really hard. So I want you to think about times in your life when your expectations have been crushed because we're going to see a lot of that in this narrative. And I have a whole lot to say in a very short time, so forgive me if I'm powering through this. Um, the plot against Jesus. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, that was the Passover, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So the Passover gathered a lot of people into a small space of Jerusalem as they're all coming together to celebrate this time. So they're worried about um, some of his followers, some of the, the outside followers, being there in Jerusalem and um, actually causing a riot. So they're, they're worried about it. It's not going to make much difference, as it turns out. Um, so this is a transition point. We are moving away from the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus, and we're diving directly into kind of the, the crowning achievement, the thing that, um, that Jesus was in, intentionally here for. And there's this great irony in this part um, about the chief priests and the elders, because they were scheming, right? But they were playing into God's purpose for them. For the, for the world, right? He, God is going to save all of humanity, and he's doing it by this scheming group of people, right? So I want, I want you to notice that. Okay, moving on. This is a little small, I'm sorry. Um, while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Ironically, we don't know her name. At least not from Matthew. Um, so, there's a couple things I wanted to point out about this. Like these pretty perfume bottles. Um, in Matthew, he's talking, he, he says that the disciples, all of them, in um, Luke that whoever this was that complained about this woman is unnamed, and in John it's named as Judas. But in Matthew, he is saying the whole, all of the disciples. And as elsewhere in Matthew, um, when he says the disciples, he's usually talking about Christians, people who have it, who are followers of Christ. Um, and so he's kind of making this complaint to the Christians, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians that you are, this is what your attitude is, and we are here to, because we're in relationship with Jesus. 
a lot of people get, get concerned about the phrase, the poor you will have with you always, right? Um, this is a recognition that giving to the poor is an ongoing obligation. It's not something that's just done at a certain time of year. Um, during the Passover, the Jewish tradition was to kind of increase their activity in almsgiving and giving to the poor. Um, and so Jesus is acknowledging that by saying the poor you will have with you. And he's saying that's always your obligation. But we have a special circumstance right here because this woman is preparing me for burial. She's preparing um, us together. And Deuter this may be a, a reflection back to Deuteronomy 15, um, verse 11. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. So in Deuteronomy, so Jesus is reflecting back on that. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is saying, um, you're always going to have the poor. So that should increase your willingness and ability to um, engage with them and help them. Now, something that I would like to point out, and it's not just because this is a women's Bible study, but because this is important in this narrative from Matthew. The women come off really good in this whole story, right? We're going to come back and we're going to see the women coming back over and over again, and every single time they are they're faithful when the disciples are not. They are there. They're doing the things that that people should be doing. They're the example to the rest of the disciples of this is what you should be doing, and then the disciples are the example of what you should not be doing. So, way to go, women. Um, they're more loyal, unselfish, and braver. Um, and here, there's this really stark contrast. Um, the men are quibbling over the legitimacy of this general, generous act of love, while the woman is manifesting the true spirit of discipleship. Judas, we know Judas, um, one of the twelve, and, and I'm going to stop there and say the the. 12 here is pointed out um, as, as a contrast to this woman. She is not allowed to be one of the 12 because she's female, right? But she has done this beautiful thing of discipleship. And here, then, one of the 12 is going to do this horrible, horrible, sinister, corrupt thing by betraying Jesus. So one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Judas. Um, Matthew is not trying to explain why Judas does this. Um, he explains why the woman does what she does. She's preparing him for burial. But he's not interested in explaining Judas. He's not interested in explaining Peter. He's not interested even in, in explaining Jesus' actions. But he is interested in explaining the woman, which is cool. Um, so, so Judas is probably um, one of a, a splinter group called the Sicarii. 
They were a very violent faction of a group called the Zealots. Now the Zealots were um, interested in violence. They were trying to overthrow the Roman rule <coughs> in Israel. Um, so they, they were doing it by, through violence. And so if you can imagine that the Sakari were a violent faction of the Zealots, um, then you've got kind of the picture. They were actually a, a coordinated assassination team. They would hide these little daggers called the Tzikhei, um, if I have that pronounced correctly, um, in their clothes, and they'd go into a, a busy area, which you can imagine during Passover is really, really busy, um, and they would um, stab someone and then stick their dagger under their cloak again and escape. So they were one of the very first assassination teams. You can imagine. Um, so we think that Judas was probably a Sicarii because if you think that, listen to his name, what he's called, he's called Judas Iscariot, right? So, and that's very uh, a common um, way to kind of address someone is by to tell them this is who you are. So he, he was probably one of these Sicarii. So he's very interested in this movement that Jesus is initiating, right? That to, to bring about the end of Roman rule. That's the understanding of all of, um, all of Israel, of who the Messiah was gonna be. He was gonna be a savior, and they understood that to be a political position, not a spiritual position. Um, so he was probably part of the disciple team, go team, um, as a, one of these people that is trying to, um, like, oh, this guy's going to do it. This guy's the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Roman rule. I'm going to be part of it. And I'm going to take the, this message of the zealots and the Sicarii um, to Jesus' ministry. So that's a little bit. The, the assumption is if he was indeed one of these Sicarii, that he did this not as not because he thought Jesus was wrong, but because he was impatient and he wanted Jesus to, to get on it. He wasn't willing to wait. And so he then, assuming that he was going to, um, Jesus would break the chains or however else, um, once he was arrested, that that would initiate uh, this violent overthrow of the Roman rule that um, by getting him arrested, that's what would happen. Um, so I'm not, I'm not justifying what Judas did um, because Jesus doesn't justify it. Jesus is, um, even, even though it's working into God's will, um, Jesus is pretty harsh on Judas. We'll see that in a little bit. Um, but that could be, and then if one, we'll see in a little bit um, how he reacts when he realizes that Jesus isn't doing what he expected. Broken expectations. The Last Supper. So we've got Judas here who is waiting for an opportunity. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. 
And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. So this is really shocking to the disciples. They have been living and breathing and doing everything with Jesus for the past three years. Um, I want you to notice something, though. All of the disciples, except for Judas, say, surely not me, Lord. Judas says, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Rabbi was the term that the, the uninitiated, the people who weren't familiar, not the closest followers, but kind of the outer rings of people who were coming for um, to hear what Jesus had to say, to be healed, all of those people, those were the people who called him rabbi. His closest followers called him Lord. So Judas is already creating a separation for himself. You'll notice also Jesus' response. You have said so. We're going to hear this a couple more times. Exactly this way. This is a, a picture of pretty flowers, and, and you can't see it, but there's a Passover meal there. <clears throat> okay. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, "This Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in this Eucharist, we call this the Eucharist, right? The, it's kind of a high church term for it. It's also the, the Lord's Supper, uh, communion, um, this is Jesus initiating this. And, and we call it, my tradition, we call it an ordinance because Jesus orders it. Um, do it. He says, do it. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, it's a sacrament um, in the Presbyterian tradition because Jesus tells us, this is what I want you to participate in. And in doing this, he's taking this Passover meal. These are standard pieces of the, the Passover meal, the matzah bread, is a reminder of how God saved the people of Israel from the, the bondage in Egypt, right? Um, they, they eat the matzah bread as a reminder um, that they didn't have time to, to let the bread rise, right? It's, it's flat bread. They, don't have, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They picked up and they left, and that was God saving them. And so Jesus is taking this and saying, this is the new way that you're going to be saved, through my, my flesh, through my death. 
And then the cup, they it probably were guessing it was the second of four cups of wine that they drank in the Passover meal. Um, and the second one is also a reminder of the escape from Egypt and how God is saved, um, his saving provision. So we have these two examples from the Passover meal that Jesus is reimagining for the disciples and what that, um, who they are and what he wants them to do to remember who he, what he has done, what God has done for them. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Remember Matthew is really, um, it's really important to him that people, he keeps going back to Old Testament prophecies and he, he wants his people to recognize how Jesus is fulfilling those prophecies. So this is another one, this is from Zechariah 13, 7 if you want to look it up. Um, but after I have, I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That's a pretty surprising statement, isn't it? He's been saying, I'm going to be crucified. And then he says, I'm going to rise up and I'll, I'll meet you. Go, go meet me there in Galilee. Right? That's kind of surprising. Um, and Peter, good old Peter, we love Peter, replied, even if I fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, this very night before the risen rose, you will disown me three times. Three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So I, I want you to notice, before we go on, um, that Jesus is communicating something when he says, you're going to fall away, but I want you to meet, meet me in Galilee. Right? What is that communicating? Right there. He's saying, you're going to deny me, you're going to reject me, you're going to run away, but I want you to meet me because you're still part of my people. You're still part of my church. And Jesus, I'm going to speed up here because I'm running out of time. Jesus went to his disciples, with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So Gethsemane, we have this thing going on. It's This is, this part of the narrative is telling us um, that this is not a predestined, the, this, these things aren't going to happen. Jesus has choice. Um, and I, I want you to realize that Jesus has choice. He can say no. And he's fighting with himself over it because he knows what's coming. And it's not pretty. Um, but he is has the, the, the freedom to rebel against God's will. Um, this, this whole part is not very heroic. Actually, anything from here on out on <laughs> the disciples' part is not very heroic. Um, and uh, I want you also to notice that he says in here, on. Oops, sorry. Um, Thy will be done is in here, and it, that is a reflection of the Lord's Prayer. Um, so, going a little bit further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 
That's he's going back to, this is how I taught my disciples how to pray, and this is what I'm praying now. Exactly the same. He returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. We know this. Um, they do this three times. Um, Peter is here told, Peter and the other two, told to watch and pray three times so he won't enter into temptation. So again, a reflection back to the Lord's Prayer. Um, so he's not, he's not being asked to escape temptation, but to be victorious over it. Um, so what we have here in the Garden of Gethsemane is the reversal of the Garden of Eden. And if you want some more information on that, check out Romans 5, verse 19. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we know this one, right? Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. That's the end of the third, third one. Um, so Judas is coming, and Jesus goes out to meet him. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. Again, Rabbi. And kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. So there are three parts to this betrayal. One is the hypocritical kiss, right? A kiss is a token of affection and honor, and it has turned, he has turned it into the act of betrayal. Um, and then we move forward and we have um, the cutting off of the ear, right? So um, one of Jesus' companions, it doesn't say which one, um, in Matthew, reached for a sword, because it's not important to Matthew. Uh, reached for a sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus says, put your sword back in place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? This is like the key for Matthew right here. This is what he's trying to communicate. Um, that, that Jesus has the power, but he's not going to use it. Because this has to happen in this way, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Again, Jesus, uh, Matthew is speaking to a, a Jewish Christian audience. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching. And he did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All of them. He is now alone. So Jesus has access to supernatural power, but he refuses to use it. Um, God's way of dealing with sin is through weakness. That's kind of cool, isn't it? God's way of dealing with sin is through weakness. If I am weak, he is strong. And that's what he, this is communicating to us. So Matthew is fundamentally concerned with showing that the passion narrative is God's will, foreordained by the prophets. So we are going to go in before the Sanhedrin. Um, this is all familiar text for you. Um, 
So technically, so the charge that in Matthew that um, is brought against Jesus is blasphemy, um, kind of doesn't fit with what we know about blasphemy. I think if you look up the Leviticus 24 um, and see what it says about blasphemy, it's about um, using the Lord's name in a, in a the wrong manner, um, being not respectful. It's not a theological statement, and they're kind of creating, making it a theological statement. Jesus is saying that he is God. Um, so what they're doing is they're trying to keep order, right? Um, all they needed to uh, charge him was that for him to associate himself with God. Um, and they were making it up, right? They go from... Um, False evidence, they're looking for false evidence, but they didn't find any. Um, though many false witnesses came forward. And then two, they finally get some real evidence. Two witnesses came up and said, said he was going to destroy the temple in three days, and then, or temple, and then rebuild it in three days. And then the high priest stood up and said to him, um, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that you can? These men are bringing against you, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, said Jesus. And then the high priest tied this, goes into a, a bit. Um, he has spoken blasphemy. And they say he's worthy of death. Now there's no evidence that they that blasphemy was ever uh, death a capital crime, um, but they're trying to make make this happen, so that's what they did. And then they go and they do the exact um, opposite. They're saying, you know, he's claiming to be the Messiah, and we're going to spit on him and slap him and be strike strike him uh, with their fists and ridicule him. And then we have Peter, good old Peter. Um, so remember in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, it says, Everyone therefore who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And anyone who denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Um, poor Peter. Three times in the garden, he has um, fallen asleep and not been praying to resist temptation. And three times he rejects Jesus and denies that he knows him. The first time he denies it by just saying, nope, I don't know, got the wrong guy. Second time, he's more emphatic. And the third time, he swears. I mean, he doesn't, not a full letter word, right? But he, he like, my on my honor, right, I don't know him which is exactly against what Jesus' teaching is about let your yes be yes and your no be no. This quote from Rachel held up is, if you haven't heard, um, this, she's a wonderful theologian, um, 37 year old, years old, and just died recently. Um, horrible tragedy from the flu, of all things. Um, it's a frightful thing, thinking you have to get God right in order to get God to love you. 
thinking you're always one error away from damnation. The moment we figure God out, God ceases to be God. Maybe it's time to embrace the mystery and let ourselves off the hook. Isn't that beautiful? That's, and that's, that's the story of Peter here, right? He is the, the head of the church, right? Jesus has already renamed him from Simon to Peter. He's already said you're going to be the, the corner of, cornerstone of the church, the, the foundation of the church. And, and here he's just denying Jesus. But yet, when Jesus returns, he's going to meet him in Galilee. That's great. Judas hangs himself. Um, he's, he is shocked. And this is where, I, I think this is where I get my, my opinion, that uh, Judas did this um, in order to convince Jesus to kind of step into the Messiahship and, and overtake um, the Romans. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus threw the money into the temple and away, went away and hanged himself. I was looking up pictures of nooses and got into some really creepy things, so I didn't put one up. But there's some 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> um, so the, the chief priests pick up these coins, and, and they are all so ridden with guilt, they can't even use it for the temple treasury. It's blood money. Um, so they went on and bought a field. Um, I want you to remember how they said it's your responsibility, right? Because pretty soon, Pilate's going to say the same thing to them. It's your responsibility. Oh, boy. I've got two minutes to get through the whole trial. So I'm going to go through this fast. <laughs> um, again, Jesus said, uh, when Pilate, um, the governor, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. Um, he is putting Pilate in the position of being his own defender. Jesus, this is the last time Jesus speaks. Um, he's pretty passive in the rest of this story. Um, so I just want you to notice that. Um, so he's not rejecting the title that was given to him back in, um, by Matthew back in chapter 2, way back when, by the Magi. Remember the Magi? Um, they said this is the king of the Jews. Jesus is not rejecting that title, but he's also not saying, yes, I'm guilty, because he is innocent, right? Um, and then we have the crowd is off, offered a choice. There's no evidence that this is actually something that they did, but we have this, this lovely part of the story. You get to pick Jesus, Barabbas, or Jesus, known as the Christ. Um, so... He knew that it, that he didn't want to deal with this. Pilate didn't want to deal this, with this. He wanted it to be someone else's responsibility. His wife is like, you don't want this to be your responsibility because I've been having visions. Again, going back to the Magi who had a vision and went home another way. Chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. So they, they do. Um, and... What do you want us to do to Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They say, crucify him. The whole crowd, it's not down to one or two people at this point. It's the whole crowd. Um, 
Yes, but crime is committed as pilot. They all shouted. They didn't respond, right? They don't answer the question. They just say crucifying. Um, so he says, Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility, right? So there's that parallel. Um, soldiers mock him. Um, I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> Little is said here. Um, about the actual crucifixion. The crucifixion itself is not really part of the narrative. It just says he was crucified. Um, but there's lots of um, pointers back and forth to um, the stories, the prophecies about Jesus, including the charge that's at the top, he is the king of the Jews. Um, so here, where he's up on the cross, he's got two rebels, or probably um, violent, people who are trying to get the Romans go, to go out, maybe even zealots themselves. Um, and they, everybody is ridiculing him, saying, you're done, um, you're crazy. Um, and then we have these three different um, stories um, that happen. We have the darkness that came over the land. Um, we have um, Uh, an earthquake that happened, and then we have um, the, all the tombs break, break open, um, and the rocks split, and the resurrection of a whole bunch of people. This Now, it says here that that happened after Jesus, Jesus was raised. So we're getting a little bit out of order. Matthew's telling the story. He's making a point. Um, but he wants to make sure we understand that Jesus was the first to be resurrected, and after he was resurrected, all the, the tombs broke open and the saints were released into the streets. Um, okay, and then we, he gets buried. This is an important part of Matthew's narrative because um, he wants to make sure that we understand there's a story going around that the disciples stole the body from the tomb, and that's why he wasn't there. That's why the tomb was empty. And so he wants to make sure that we understand that is not what happened. It couldn't have happened. Um, I want you to notice the women are hanging out at the foot of the cross. Then they go and they watch and keep watch at the, the tomb. Um, so they're being very uh, respectful. Um, and then the next day, and this is our last section, one of the, um, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate and said, you know, he said he was going to be raised again. So we need an extra guard. We need to make sure that that tomb is sealed um, so he can't come out. This is really interesting, right? Because the disciples didn't have this thought. They're not thinking this at all. Um, and, and Pilate's like, yeah, do what, you know, make it as secure as you want. Right? Um, two things about this. Um, they ironically create the very law that they're trying to protect against. Right? They're, they're trying, they're protecting um, the, the people uh, from the, their religion from being accused of stealing the body or whatever. Um, but by putting extra protection in front of the tomb, they actually protect against that. And they're overestimating the disciples. The disciples are not thinking that Jesus, even though he just said it, like not two days ago, um, that he was going to meet them in Galilee right after he's risen. Um, they're not thinking about this. 
and release. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much um, in the story, this narrative of your passion. Help this new understanding, the way that we have, what we've learned today to feed into our understanding of your power and how you use even our mistakes, even our intentional mistakes, for your glory, for your will. Amen.